From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and elsewhere. And also do be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, at the Journal's editorial page, we believe passionately in free expression. And each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical or historical importance in politics, economics, business, culture, science, technology, and elsewhere. We speak at length and in depth to people who are leading figures in the field, practitioners, experts, commentators, to try to give us all a better understanding of the major trends driving the news. This week, I'm delighted to say my guest is Mike Pompeo. Mr. Pompeo served under President Donald Trump, first as CIA director, and then for the final three years of the Trump administration as Secretary of State. Prior to that, he was a three-term congressman from Kansas. Before entering politics, he served in the U.S. Army and worked in business as an entrepreneur and executive. Now, he remains very much active in GOP politics and policy. He established a political action committee last year to support Republican candidates in this year's midterm elections, and he has a book coming out later this year. And though he's coy, of course, all this, along with his lengthy experience at the top levels of Republican politics, has raised expectations that he is a leading contender for the party's presidential nomination, perhaps as early as 2024. Mike Pompeo, thanks very much for joining us. Sure, it's great to be with you. So, Secretary, we'll talk widely about uh, politics and particularly the future of the Republican Party in a little while. But obviously, I want to start with the the inevitable topic of uh, immediate interest, which continues to be obviously Russia's war in Ukraine. As I said, of course, you served uh, at the very top of the U.S. foreign policy establishment for the Trump administration, and you had a good chance to see Vladimir Putin up close and in and NATO and, and understand the broader geopolitical trends we've been facing. It's now seven weeks since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It doesn't seem to have gone according to plan, and he seems to be perhaps modifying his objectives or at least changing his strategy somewhat. What's your assessment as you looked? Were you surprised either by the invasion itself or by the way in which it's unfolded? Not by the invasion, although I was always surprised in the moment. But the intention, Vladimir Putin's intention has been very clear for decades now. Recreating as much of greater Russia has been a constant theme of, of everything Putin has spoken about since he was the leader of Russia. So his objective didn't surprise me. I suppose the date always does. We worked hard to do our best to establish deterrence. Uh, we did it in Syria. When the Wagner Group guys moved across the river, we made sure there were real costs imposed. When the Russians and the Syrians colluded to uh, use chemical weapons. We, we said we were going to respond, and, and we did. I think those were things that Putin understood. He understood a adversary that said, hey, we're not going to send the 82nd Airborne, but we're serious about this. There are things that matter to America, and we're going to defend them. And we did that for four years. We had noted, right, the overtaking of Crimea under President Obama. We knew that Putin was intent on expanding that beachhead, expanding further into Europe, further into Ukraine. He didn't do it on our watch, I think, in part because he thought we were serious. And when, when the Biden administration came in, they took a very different approach. They cut a deal on a, a treaty. They asked the Russians for nothing to get back into that treaty. Uh, they sent John Kerry as the first senior representative to meet with Putin, signaling that climate change mattered more than security. Biden himself talked about minor incursion. These are the kinds of things that uh, President Biden would see. He would see the Nord Stream 2 green-lighted. He would see those things and say, this is my time to move about the cabin and begin his attack. I think he's been surprised at how much resistance he's met. I wish we'd have provided uh, Ukrainians even more tools to make life even more difficult for the Russian invaders who have caused so much destruction. I want to talk about the U.S. response uh, and indeed the U.S. handling of Russia, both uh, obviously under President Biden, but also under the Trump administration where you work. But just briefly on the war, 
as you look at it, as you see the disposition of forces and the performance so far, you know, I think, again, it hasn't gone according to most people's expectations. I think two months ago, and the idea that the Russians would have suffered the reverses they've suffered would have been considered inconceivable. As you look at it now, do you think there's any sense in which, at least if Ukraine maybe cannot win this war, then at least Russia could certainly lose it. Do you see there's a realistic scenario in which Russia could actually end up fundamentally, in some sense at least, losing this war? Oh, absolutely uh, the case. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the definition of that. But if by losing the war, one means failing to achieve the central objective, which is the complete destabilization of the Ukrainian political system, it may well be that he will lose this war. If it means the capacity to occupy um, all of the land adjacent to the Black Sea, think Odessa and West, he could absolutely lose this war. And if you think about the narrative for him back home about the growing need for greater Russia threatened by NATO, I think the world can see that NATO posed no real threat. Putin's lies that said, well, we're doing this for the Russian people that are sitting in Ukraine. I I think the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine now know who the bad guy is. In fact, I think they all were in Ukraine for a reason. They were living a better life in Ukraine if they would have been living in Russia. I think all of those things have have now been stripped bare, stripped clean. And in that sense, I do think Vladimir Putin uh, could easily lose this. But Jerry, we shouldn't take the moment that we're sitting in today as any indication that that's going to happen. It will only happen with enormous European resolve. That means ceasing to purchase Russian energy and underwriting this war. It means a serious effort to provide the actual systems that the Ukrainians have asked for. Those kinds of things will enable the Ukrainians to achieve even more success and ultimately something that can only be characterized as a loss for Vladimir Putin himself. What should our objective be? Are we here in the US and more widely in NATO? What's our objective here? Obviously, we're supporting Ukraine strongly with uh, military assistance and imposing sanctions. What's the desired outcome here from your perspective in terms of U.S. strategic interests? What should we be aiming for? Well, first, we should defend Ukraine's ability to defend itself. That is, we should help them with intelligence capabilities, all the soft things that don't get talked about as much. We should do that for them uh, because they have demonstrated their capability and their will to fight back against an authoritarian regime. That's important for Western nations, those who believe in human dignity, private property, all of those things are at play here, are at stake in this fight between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, It doesn't mean that if Ukraine fails that it's necessary that uh, we'll live in that world, but it is another chink in the democratic republic, liberal world order idea, right? The idea that simply nations are sovereign, they get to set the rules for themselves, and nobody from outside gets to come in and drive those rules by force of arms. Second, I hope this is a clarion call to the Europeans that says, Precisely, you know, it turns out if you rely for energy, for your people's needs to turn on the electricity and for them to drive their vehicles, if you depend on bad guys for that energy for your markets, things are going to end badly for you. And so I hope the Europeans will not just in this moment get religion, but rather will fundamentally reconstruct the way they think about their own energy needs and their own markets. And we will begin to build out a Western bloc of nations that are prepared to trade with each other on fair and reciprocal terms in ways that reinforce the things that have made the West so prosperous for these last couple hundred years. And if we don't, if we begin to lose the bubble, and I'm thinking here really of the Chinese Communist Party, if we begin to lose this and think, well, you know, we're all just kind of bad and we just degrees of bad. Uh, And if the Chinese Communist Party wants the United Front to come infiltrate the United States, I guess that's okay as long as we get to sell our crops someplace. Um, Those are big mistakes. And I hope the Europeans and the the nations of Asia, like India, Japan, uh, South Korea, Singapore, are all watching what authoritarian regimes do to sovereign nations and are now even more resolved to working alongside the United States to deliver 
a global system that is based on the rule of law and property rights and respect for sovereignty. Those things actually matter. And you can see that in Ukraine today. It's interesting that you talk in those terms and you talk about, you said earlier that we all understand now, we all can all see very clearly who is the aggressor here. And you've just said there, we've got to get away from this idea that we're kind of all bad and that it's all kind of moral equivalence out there. And we can't criticize, you know, or, or take action against the country for defending its objectives and very clearly pose their Russia as a threat to the international order. But I do think it's fair to say that the administration you served in, President Trump in particular, certainly gave the impression that he didn't view Vladimir Putin in those terms at all. He had very positive things to say about Vladimir Putin frequently. He often called on Vladimir Putin to help him to achieve certain things, including some domestic political objectives. He spoke very warmly and very highly of him. And by the way, and even you yourself, like days before the invasion of Ukraine, you said you had enormous respect for him. You said that he was very capable and he had an almost elegant sophistication about the way he tackled his problems. Is there not an impression that Trump himself and again that administration, and I know you're going to say, yes, you gave a lot of military support to Ukraine and you were critical of Russia and you would sort of face them down in some other areas. But there was a sense that from the president on down, Vladimir Putin was not seen as a villain, not seen as an aggressor, but was potentially seen as a partner. Oh, goodness. Well, I, I speak for myself and the work that I think we all did. We knew precisely who Vladimir Putin was. I defend, I, I might not use the word elegant, but uh, perhaps I misspoke there. But short of that, I mean, he's a pretty savvy character. He's very smart. He got to the top of his pile inside of Russia, right? If I, Jerry Faust taught one thing at West Point is don't call your adversary the JV because they'll start cutting your heads off in the Middle East. That's what President Obama did. Don't underestimate your adversary. Don't say, oh, he's dumb and stupid and weak when in fact he's not. This is why we provided weapon systems to the Ukrainians. It's why when I was a CIA director, I went down to the Donbass personally and watched the training that we were conducting with the Ukrainian special operators in that part of the world. No, it was precisely because we knew that Vladimir Putin had a thousand nuclear warheads and a an intense desire to rebuild greater Russia that we were working to push back against them and the nuclear file and military capabilities. That's why we built defense budget that actually made sense and was greater than the rate of increase of inflation, unlike this current administration. Now, we were pretty serious. I think if you talk to the Russian military leadership, they would come to see that this was a pretty serious administration when it came to Russia. And second, um, there were absolutely places we were working alongside them. I, as a CIA director, I there's a famous press release from Vladimir Putin thanking me, thanking the CIA, really, um, for the work that it did to stop a terror plot in St. Petersburg. It was important that we worked on counter-terror issues with them together. I, I'm confident we saved Russian lives in St. Petersburg. I am equally confident we saved American lives that day as well by giving the Russian internal security services the information they needed to actually physically take down that terror plot inside of St. Petersburg. I think we had it precisely right. Uh, look, we lived under the Russia hoax for the first two years of the Trump administration, a theory of the case that said somehow Donald Trump was working on behalf of Russia and colluding with the Russians during the election. I think Adam Schiff's effort and CNN's efforts there have been shown to be massively counterfactual. Um, but it was something that we certainly experienced for our first two years, Jerry. John Bolton, your colleague in the Trump administration, national security advisor for a while, has said recently, in fact, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that if Donald Trump had been reelected, he would have pulled the US out of NATO, in effect, leaving almost no capability to defend countries in Eastern Europe. Of course, Donald Trump did threaten to pull the US out of NATO while he was president. Do you think Bolton was right? Do you think NATO would have been actually weakened if there'd been a second Trump term? That's an interesting question. I've been asked, would this invasion have occurred? I've been asked, would Chairman Kim be firing missiles? All kinds of things. Like, what would have happened if you all were still there? 
And I've tried to stay out of that game a bit. What I've tried to do is say, well, this is what we did during our four years. One should look at those four years as the best predictor of what would have happened had there been an additional four years. And during those four years, NATO actually became stronger. Secretary General used the term $480 billion worth of additional investment by NATO countries as a direct result of what President Trump and I were trying to do. So I hear folks say, we moved more forces as part of the EFF program, the program that moved forces into Poland, into uh, Eastern countries. We moved more forces into Eastern Europe during our time in office than were there when we took. So uh, John Bolton can have his opinion about what might have happened. I can tell you precisely what did happen for the four years that I was part of the Trump administration. And then I suppose everybody can write whatever silliness they choose. Let's talk about China and the wider strategic challenge. Do you think that this war in Ukraine and particularly the firm alliance between Russia and China, does this complicate U.S. strategic objectives? I mean, we're now very clearly confronting not only the long-term strategic challenge of China, but very much the immediate strategic challenge from Russia. And now these two allies, does it complicate that? Does it weaken the United States' ability to meet these significant challenges at the same time? Or paradoxically, perhaps, does it help to kind of clarify the larger strategic role of the United States, the larger strategic objectives of the United States? Is there a way in which this could actually be beneficial to the United States in terms of developing the right strategic posture in dealing ultimately with what I think everybody agrees is the longer term challenge of China. Uh, Jerry, I think both are true. I think you can hold each of those two thoughts in your head at the same time. I do think it makes it more complicated. If you take those sets of forces and add them together, the capabilities across the full spectrum, whether you think of space or cyber or uh, more traditional kinetic capabilities, and if you add nuclear weapons and missiles as well, uh, it's certainly a more complicated strategic picture as a result of the relationship between China and Russia being close. So I think that's true. But I think that increased complexity and increased risk is absolutely clarifying. This is something that I spoke about in remarks in it was May of 2020 from the Nixon Library when I was talking mostly about China, but their ability to rely on Russia for things that they uh, don't have other good partners for as they become increasingly isolated in the world. Think of the pipelines that are now under construction. Think of the discounted energy that Russia is likely to provide to the Chinese Communist Party. I think you will come to see that for the Western world, this will be incredibly clarifying. And I think you will begin to see this. Uh, folks have called it decoupling. I think you're going to begin to see even in sharper focus, the different parts of the world and how they choose to be seen in the world and how they choose to compete in the world. I think you're going to see a model that looks like ours and a model that looks more like the Chinese. And I pray that President Biden and whoever follows him is successful at making sure that the bloc, the big economies of the world, the nations of the world that are prepared to actually compete across the most important economic sectors in a way that isn't about stealing intellectual property and isn't about complete destruction of human dignity. I pray that those nations will come together uh, and uh, build out a bloc which will force both China and Russia to behave in a way, at least externally, that looks more like the kind of world that I hope my kids and grandkids get to live in. What about Taiwan? I mean, the U.S. position, posture towards Taiwan has always been this one of strategic ambiguity, which, um, you know, which you very much maintained, I think it's fair to say, during the Trump administration. It uh, continues to be the, the main feature of the U.S. posture. Do you think the U.S. is currently doing enough to deter China, to really make uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party aware of the price that they would pay? And indeed, what would that price be if they were to do what many analysts thought for a long time they will do, which is to attempt to invade and, and recover Taiwan for mainland China? No, Jerry, we're not doing enough. But uh, three thoughts. One, 
We tried to do more during our time. I made decisions about Taiwan, treating them more like the independent sovereign nation that I, I believe they are. I didn't get all the way. When I was in Taiwan now, I guess it's five weeks ago, I made a pretty clear statement that that ambiguity ought to go away, that in fact, we ought to recognize Taiwan as the independent country that it is. I joked that um, I have been sanctioned. I'm not, not permitted to travel to China, and I was able to land in Taiwan. So clearly something different there. We ought to acknowledge that in a serious way. We ought to provide the Taiwanese with the tools that they need to defend themselves. There are deep, deep, important American interests in Taiwan. We always think about semiconductors. That's the one that comes to everybody's mind. That is material and relevant. Um, but there are so many other important, both economic and security issues surrounding it. Second uh, idea is it's not just an American challenge. This is a challenge for all of Southeast Asia. So Japan, uh, Singapore, South Korea, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, Thailand, Vietnam. These are nations that want to be alongside the United States. They understand that the Chinese Communist Party has intentions to make them even more vassal states. They don't want that for their own people. They want to protect their sovereignty, and we ought to partner alongside them to help them deliver economic security for themselves and a coercive capability economically that will prevent the Chinese Communist Party from essentially taking them over. I, I for one, have believed for a long time that the Chinese are less likely to invade than others have believed that, because I don't think that the Xi Jinping sees it as a necessity. I believe he thinks he can take over China using political influence, united front operations inside of Taiwan, uh, and political coercion in a way that can get him the, quote, reunification, end of quote, that he so desperately needs. Obviously, there is no Asian equivalent of NATO. There are various, uh, US has various alliances with various Asian countries, but there isn't a, a mutual defense pact among Asian countries. Do you think, But and if you look at it, you've just outlined them there. You've got Japan and Korea and India and Australia and the Philippines, the Southeast Asian countries. Do you think there might be a case for moving more, not towards a, a, you know, any kind of replica of NATO, but to a more formal alliance, a former alliance based on the idea of mutual defense? There must be. We began to build it around something we called the Quad. That was Japan, Australia, India, and ourselves. The Biden administration has continued it. They actually did it at the uh, senior leader level, the summit level. I think that's great. I think military exercises, training, information, sharing, intelligence, sharing those kinds of things that can begin to do what you described in your, I think it was your first question on China, which is to make clear to Xi Jinping the cost that will be connected to him using kinetic activity, military activity, to actually undermine the sovereignty of each of those nations. If you put the GDPs of those big countries together, uh, India, Japan, Australia, South Korea, Europe, the United States, we can, in fact, push back against what has been a Chinese war for at least 30 years, an economic war on the West. This is the place this will be contested. This is the place we need to push back. And this is the place that if we do it right, we will cause the Chinese Communist Party to have to behave in a way that is fundamentally different in what Xi Jinping has, his, has as his intention today. We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more on this episode of Free Expression, talking to Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Mike Pompeo, former CIA director and former Secretary of State, and someone who may loom large in domestic politics, as we'll discover later in this podcast. Mike, where's the Republican Party going on foreign policy, do you think? It's been a fascinating journey over the last 20 years. We saw 
President Bush, obviously, by the way, President you know George W. Bush came in in 2001, committed actually to a more modest foreign policy. He was actually quite critical of some of the sort of nation building of, <laughs> of, of Bill Clinton. How does that look now, 20 yeah. years later? Then, of no, course, we had... Very no, that's noted. That's often forgotten. That's it is, absolutely. Point. But he did yeah. come in. That, that was the position then. Then we had 9-11, and then obviously we had Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, we had a, John McCain was the candidate in 2008, very much associated with that rather aggressive, robust foreign policy. Mitt Romney in 2012 supported it too. The Republican Party as a whole seemed to support it as a, as a member of Congress. I think it's fair to say you broadly supported this sort of a fairly, as I say, robust posture. And then along comes Donald Trump and says, we want to put an end to these wars. We want to, you know, be more, again, we want to be more modest. We want to step back. We want America first. We're not going to sacrifice American lives for the sake of some, you know, democracy or some, some long-term achievement of sort of objective security. Donald Trump, obviously, we're going to talk about this again in, about domestic politics in a little bit. Donald Trump is obviously still around. Where is the party now? Where's, where, in your view, what's the, is there a synthesis here? within this Republican Party foreign policy approach? Or thanks to Ukraine, are we now going back again, as we seem to be with Republicans, to a more robust foreign policy approach, one that supports uh, American engagement abroad? So there are obviously different uh, elements of the Republican Party, indeed the conservative movement that land in different places on this. There's a long history of this. We could go to Pat Buchanan from recent times or way back uh, to Coolidge and the like. We can go, we can go back inside of Republican thought. Uh, the truth is that the two boxes aren't as separate. The Venn diagram has more overlap than one would think. Uh, my theory of the case is Secretary of State, at least what we tried to deliver, what I tried to deliver for the president was uh, a central understanding of a very realistic foreign policy. We, we didn't use high-minded rhetoric in the same way. I've seen President Biden talking about this great clash of democracies. It was about how is that you deliver sovereignty for nation states in a way that reflects the American understanding, the traditional, the founding founders understanding of the United States of America and its place in the world. And that doesn't mean one has to deploy military power to achieve that. Today, we have so many other tools. The Secretary of State, I had American energy at my back. Every country wanted an LNG port. They wanted the pipeline to run through their country, the American economy, our technology, our AI. These were things that other nations wanted to partner with the United States on and gave us enormous capacity to do good in the world. And when we did, we were doing an enormous amount of good for America first. I was never shy about talking about putting the lives of Americans first. This was my duty to the United States. Uh, but when we did that, when we delivered that, we could find friends and partners who said, yeah, I want, to, I want to be part of that effort. I will come alongside the United States because we need them. They have a huge economy and a powerful military. The dichotomy that talks about, you know, isolationist one hands and uh, war hawks on the other. I've been just so, you know, I've been called both. F fair enough. Uh, call me what you will. It's a, it's a pretty realistic understanding about how America can use its capacity in the world as a force for good and deliver for the American people every day. That's what we sought to do. We didn't kick off one war. We created peace agreements, formal peace agreements between four nations and the nation of Israel. And we did it without a single deployment of an infantry brigade to go fight someplace we weren't fighting when we took office. That's America using its power as a force for good in the world, Jerry. There are some conservatives now who are in a strange kind of inversion. They've sort of swapped clothes with the uh, with the far left from from back in the Cold War days when everything America did was wrong and, you know, blame America first, as Gene Kirkpatrick used to famously call it. And there are some conservatives now who are so unhappy with the state of American democracy who think the country is fundamentally on the wrong track in all kinds of ways with the culture wars and all that kind of stuff that actually America's no better than anywhere else. America's no business imposing its will on anywhere else in the world. They don't like what the Biden administration is talking about doing, is doing with Ukraine. We're no better than Russia. We're no better than, you know, we've got these other great civilizations like China out there. So, and America is, you know, not the great country that it was. I take it you 
you, you'd push back against that view that despite whatever you may you may think, and we will come on to domestic policies, whatever you may think about what's wrong with this country, it still represents, you know, not in Ronald Reagan's words, the last best hope, right, for, for the world. And we should not be afraid to promote American values around the world. Amen. No, it's not a close call. There is nothing like the United States of America in terms of both its history, as I think the world would reflect upon if they were honest, even though some can't admit it, and the potential as we move forward. This is an exceptional nation. Uh, it, the, the moral equivalence I hear coming from the left and even some uh, on our side, uh, I, I find deeply disturbing it. I find it more importantly inconsistent with the record and what's really taking place in the world. I, I'd only add, Jerry, that it, it doesn't mean because we're this exceptional place that we have a duty to go foist our value system on every place in the world. That's not the case, but we should never fail to shine a light on those who are acting in a way that is inconsistent with that. And then we should always make sure that we are trying to get it even more right here at home. When they talk about these, these issues, I see them too. Uh, failed schools, uh, teaching silly stuff to our kids about the 1619 Project. I see that too, but make no mistake about it. That pales in comparison to what's happening when the Chinese are holding a million Uyghurs in Western China in internment camps and Russians are killing kids at train stations. It's it's not a close call. The domestic record of the Trump administration, which you served, and a lot of people, well, I think, were, were very happy with it. The economy was strong. You had a tax cutting program. Now, there may be some issues about the deficits that it produced. But there was a, you know, the sense that the uh, country, were, some people didn't like, a lot of people didn't like, it's fair to say, Donald Trump's tone and terminology. But the outcomes were, on the whole, it seemed pretty good. And you could, could say the same about foreign policy, too. And just, just as you have been saying, whether it was standing up to China or whether it was supporting allies or getting allies to do more to help the United States. As you see the next few years for the US and the domestic politics and whatever may happen there, was that what you would like to do to kind of have a, like a restoration of the Trump administration's years? Is that what where you think the Republican Party is going to be headed in the next few years? A kind of a, um, with, with or without Donald Trump, it's going to be kind of Trumpian in outlook. Jerry, I hope so. Uh, it, it delivered good outcomes for people across a wide range of socioeconomic strata, across race lines, gender, all, all of these things. If you look back in first quarter of 19 and, and just stare at the economic models that were sitting there, it was as firm a foundation as the American economy has been on since I was a young lieutenant in the Reagan years, um, after he got through the first couple years of real challenge that had been left to him by President Carter. Uh, we were really in a good place as a nation, as an economic matter. There was more to do. The United States government has too big a deficit, and the debt that flows from that is staggering and needs to be addressed. There is always more that can be due to refine our tax policy and our regulatory policy to reward families and folks who are willing to go out and invest and take risks. When we get those things right, just as Reagan did and just as we did in large parts of the Trump administration, I think American families will feel more at ease, more comfortable, and will be very confident that their kids and grandkids will get to live in a nation of opportunity, much like the one that they did. Do you think Donald Trump had the 2020 election stolen from him? There's a lot of goofiness in that election, but I'm always mindful uh, when I get asked questions like this. You know, Hillary Clinton's out talking about her election having been stolen in 2016. I'm old enough to remember hanging chads in Florida. John Kennedy stole the election in 1960 in Illinois. When people ask these questions about did something happen or didn't happen, I'm a forward-looking guy. We had some goofy stuff. We should go fix it. Think, think about this. We, we know, we know, we know lots. Of, we, have, we have a capacity to hold clean. We have, we have a capacity to hold clean, fair elections that people have confidence in. And large swaths of the American population on both sides of the political spectrum are worried about the integrity of our elections. We could fix that with just a set of simple rules about when you get to vote, how you get to vote, and making sure that we know exactly who voted and they voted just once, and then we counted that one vote. 
we got to get this right. But it doesn't sound like you would necessarily agree with the former president that the election was actually stolen. You've said, you know, we have goofy stuff going on in elections. But the actual claim that he won the election and it was stolen from him, you don't, you don't it doesn't sound like you agree with that. I'm not in office. Okay, so, so but, but, but are you not in office because 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 your I'm office not, was, not was office. stolen from you I'm by uh, by, and, by and it breaks my heart. <laughs> so, and uh, and I, I, more than more than breaks my heart, I think the American people are worse off for that. So you know we can all go back and, and spend a lot of time trying to recreate the wheel from what happened in 2020 to the extent it helps us be more successful here in four months to make sure we have a good election in 2020. I am all about it. But if it's about Somehow we're going to reinstate somebody in office or put it all back in the box. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm onward. Donald Trump gave an interview uh, just uh, last week, I think, in which he was asked about his own intentions. And he was asked if he was going to run. And, he, of course, he was coy about it. But he did say this. He, he was asked specifically if he thought he was going to run against you, um, uh, Nikki Haley, and other people um, who worked in that administration. And he, this is what he said. He said, if I ran, I can't imagine they'd want to run. Some out of loyalty would have a hard time running. Does that apply to you? I am deeply grateful for the privilege President Trump gave to me. Uh, and I have spent these last 14 months out campaigning for folks all across America, school board races, district attorney races, big bigger races than that. Uh, the Pompeos will sort this all out at the end of the year. And if we conclude that uh, this is the moment where we think we're the, we're the right people, that I'm the right leader for the United States and indeed uh, the right leader for the free world. We'll get in and we'll go make the case to the people of Iowa, New Hampshire, and all across the country. And then the good Lord will sort it all out. Would a sense of loyalty to Donald Trump, though, prevent you from running if he were running? Do you think you should step aside and, you know, he was your boss. He, you know, elevated you to two great roles in the administration. Do you, that's what, that's his view. He thinks you should step aside if he decides to run. Do you think that's, you think that's right? Oh, I don't, I don't know if that's what he was saying or not. I saw what you were talking about. Uh, look, in the end, my commitment is to do what I've been doing for the last, goodness gracious, coming on 40 years now, to try my best to give back to this great nation. And if I conclude it's the right thing to do, that's what I'll do. And you got a book uh, coming out later in the year? So, uh, sort of a, uh, a memoir, part memoir, part sort of policy advocacy, is that right? It's going to focus on the, the rationale for what we did. So it'll tell the story of the work that President Trump and I did around the world for four years and try and lay out the the strategic underpinnings, the thought that went into that, why we made the decisions that we made at the time that we made them. We didn't, Jerry, we didn't get everything right every day. And I'll be honest about those places where we could have done better. If we thought through a little more, we might've done something a little bit different, but I want to make sure that the world, and most importantly, the American people can understand what we were thinking, why we settled in the policy places that we did, and then our observation about the outcomes that flowed from that. Secretary Mike Pompeo, I know we're going to be hearing a lot more from you over the course of the next uh, months and years. Thank you very much, indeed, for joining me. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me on today. That's all for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much, indeed, for listening. Please do join us again next week for another deep exploration of the issues. And please subscribe at Apple Podcasts and do leave us a favourable review, too, if you feel so inclined. Thank you again and goodbye. <laughs>